It's Midday Magazine for Friday, August 18th. I'm Hannah Floor. Devil's Thumb sits just across the water from Petersburg, a monolith of ice and granite. Until recently, the mountain had never been climbed by someone born and raised in Petersburg. Kyle Knight reached the summit after a lifetime of watching the mountain, dreaming of the climb. KFSK has the story. Devil's Thumb rises to 9,000 feet above sea level, part of the boundary mountains of the Stikine Ice Field. Mountaineer Dieter Close has spent more time exploring the thumb than anyone else. He came to Petersburg to climb it in 1980 and eventually made Petersburg his home. Like my son said, Petersburg wouldn't be the same without Devil's Thumb. You know, and I think for everybody, we see this beautiful thing. It's like inspiring. It's it's daunting. It's it's aberrant. And it just instills this wonder in climbers and not. In cloudy, misty southeast Alaska, the peak isn't visible most of the time. So it's shorthand. When people say, you can see the thumb, that means good weather, blue skies. The mountain's remote location and extreme conditions make it notorious among rock and ice climbers. It's been summited fewer than 50 times since Fred Becky first climbed it in 1946. The classic eastern ridge is sometimes referred to as the easy route. But that's only in comparison to the icy northwest face, which remains unclimbed. Three people have died in the attempt. To locals, the thumb is as much a part of Petersburg as the rain and the smell of fish in summertime. That's part of the reason that 35-year-old Kyle Knight wanted to climb the mountain. I think that's what makes it so special or significant to me, is that that's a peak that's been dominating the skyline from a very young age. And, you know, it's totally striking. I know that everybody has some sort of a relationship with that skyline. His interest started in middle school when he found an old climbing magazine from the 70s in his parents' library. It was an account of a climbing party's first ascent of the north ridge of the north face of Devil's Thumb. was just totally enamored with that story of their adventure in the landscape. But when Knight was young, and even after he started climbing in his teens... Summoning Devil's Thumb seemed more like a dream than a realistic goal. I felt like that was sort of the uh, the realm of the world-class alpinist and um, a challenge and a, and a risk level that I wasn't going to be able to develop the skills to be comfortable with. But the skills came. Knight became friends with people who had climbed Devil's Thumb. After high school, he moved to the lower 48 and climbed constantly. The dream became a stated goal. It would take another 15 years to achieve the goal. That's partly because the best time to climb the mountain is May through August, when there's less chance of avalanches and rockfall. Knight is a fisherman and spends summers in Bristol Bay. But this year, a close friend with lots of experience on the mountain was visiting Petersburg. They decided they would attempt the climb in August after Knight returned from fishing. Even in summer, storms can make an ascent of Devil's Thumb impossible. But the pair lucked out with a tight window of good weather within days of Knight's return. They took a helicopter to base camp where they spent the night. At about 7 a.m., they roped up and began their climb of the direct east ridge. Knight says he often tried to block out the view on the way up. It's scary. <laughs> so, so, so by focusing just on the moves themselves, you can avoid that fear. They reached the top around dinner time. I totally felt satisfaction. But also, I know that uh, getting to the top is only halfway because you got to get back down, and you never want to feel so satisfied that you lose that sense of focus. Knight says the summit is a boulder about the size of a van. 
The actual top of it is just big enough for one person to sit astride with 6,000 feet of exposure down on either side below your feet. They spent about two minutes taking in the view and snapping photos. It was 2 a.m. before they were back at base camp. Knight says their slow speed could have been due to his training, or lack thereof. He had a very specific training regimen in the months leading up to the climb. Bristol Bay sockeye salmon fishing. (laughs) (laughs) Lots and lots of crawling in and out of the engine room. But it took longer than expected for another reason. There's a lot of newly exposed rock where in the past there had been snowfields. That rock hasn't had time to settle, which means it's loose and dangerous. Knight says the descent in the dark was a risk that he was comfortable taking just once. Yeah, I did it once. I don't really want to do it again. But trying the thumb again? Knight says he gives it a solid maybe. A big part of wanting to do it is looking at it for all these years. and Now I can look up there and know that I have been up there. Veteran climber Dieter Close is thrilled that Knight summited the mountain. He's the first person that grew up in Petersburg and climbed Devil's Thumb. In my mind, that's the beginning of, of a legend in Petersburg. One thing is for sure, it's not the last mountain Knight will climb. He plans to keep fishing every summer and climbing the rest of the year. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. More than 20 endangered sea lions have been found dead in the Copper River Delta this summer, many with gunshot wounds. The National Marines Fisheries Service has now quadrupled the reward for information on the illegal killings to $20,000. Sadie Wright, a biologist with the agency, says the dead animals were found during surveys of the area east of Cordova. This year, she says... It's an unusually high number. We've done this for a number of years, and this year we've found a big spike in number of dead sea lions on the islands there. As of June 2nd, they'd found seven dead sea lions in the area. Since then, at least 15 more have been reported. Wright says by this time in previous years, they'd found about three or four. Stellar sea lions are protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the the Endangered Species Act. Killing them is illegal. The only exception is for subsistence hunting by Alaska Native people. This isn't the first time numerous sea lions have been killed in the area. Wright says in 2015, fishermen illegally shot sea lions. They saw as a threat to their livelihood. But Wright says they're still not sure what is behind this year's spike. So we know that that has happened in the past. In this case, I don't know. We're not sure why people would uh, injure, harm, kill uh, sea lions in the, in the area. The endangered sea lion population is already facing challenges like the marine heat wave. And Wright says these killings hurt their chance of recovering. A lot of these animals that we're seeing out there dead are, are young animals uh, in their prime. So it's, it's sad to see them um, die when uh, there doesn't seem to be a good cause for it. Wright says people can report harm or harassment of marine mammals to NOAA law enforcement at 1-800-853-1964. Congenital syphilis rates in Alaska have risen steadily over the past five years. That's according to the State Division of Public Health. A pregnant woman with syphilis can pass the disease to her baby during pregnancy. Congenital syphilis can lead to serious complications like premature birth, stillbirth, or a baby born with blindness or deformed bones. Alaska Chief Medical Officer Ann Zink 
says the increase in congenital syphilis mirrors a rise in syphilis across the state. It's a completely preventable condition. So we have tests for it, we have treatment for it, but if we don't identify a mother who is positive for syphilis while she is pregnant with her child, that child can have lifelong uh, complications as well as put the child at risk for miscarriage and stillbirth. Singh says the state is recommending new guidelines for prevention. Previously, healthcare providers were testing at least once during pregnancy and then as needed. <clears throat> but now the state recommends pregnant women be tested twice during pregnancy and once at birth. Singh says babies with congenital syphilis tend to be from mothers who didn't have access to good prenatal care. Many of those mothers were experiencing homelessness and many reported using hard drugs in the year before they gave birth. Zink co-signed a letter to healthcare practitioners urging them to test for syphilis whenever people intersect with the medical system. Maybe it's an urgent care, an orthopedic clinic, an emergency department. That may be the one time that someone who's struggling with homelessness or addiction may be coming in and out of the healthcare system, or maybe it's an addiction treatment service. Zink says that rates of syphilis were down for years. So, healthcare workers may not have been trained much on the disease. She says rates of se- sexually transmitted diseases are generally higher in Alaska than other states, but Alaska is not alone. She says syphilis is one of the biggest healthcare concerns nationwide. While the amount of garbage Sitka ships out of town won't be decreasing anytime soon, the amount of space it takes will be shrinking. The city installed a new solid waste compactor earlier this summer, and the $3 million machine is finally up and running. As Catherine Rose reports, the huge machine is eerily reminiscent of a famous movie compactor and might be a new hope for putting the squeeze on Sitka's high garbage bills. You know, it's not going to take them long to figure out what happened to us. Could be worse. It's worse. Remember in Star Wars when Leia, Luke, Han Solo, and Chewie fall down a garbage chute while sneaking around the Death Star? They land in a trash heap, brown water up to their knees, where some space monster we never really see, save a lime green eyeball and a lone tentacle, is lurking just below the surface. There's something alive in here. That's your imagination. But that's the least of their problems. I got a bad feeling about this. Slowly, the walls start closing in on them. Don't just stand there and try and brace it with something. Fortunately, our heroes managed to escape the Empire's trash compactor relatively unscathed. It's hard not to think of this scene when I visit the transfer station in Sitka to get a glimpse of the city's new solid waste compactor. After all, the Death Star was kind of like an island, and they probably had to ship their solid waste to Tatooine. Yeah, it definitely kind of reminds me of Star Wars. <laughs> it's so kind of, it cool. goes a little dystopian, you know, yeah. it's kind of weird, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, who deals with garbage? <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's Mike Stenberg. He's the maintenance and operations superintendent for the city. I quickly discover that the transfer station is a pretty loud place to do an interview. Every few minutes, a truck backs into the covered garage to dump a load of garbage for the compactor to crush. And it doesn't smell as bad as I thought it would. 
Well, we're fortunate because uh, we're usually, you know, 50-ish degrees. So right now, this time of year, slightly above a milk cooler. Eutrophication so doesn't happen so fast. It might be in part because they have a new system. Until this year, the city was pushing garbage into open-top shipping containers. Then they'd use an excavator bucket to press the garbage down manually. Sitka solid waste is shipped out by barge and then driven to a landfill in eastern Washington. In 2020, Alaska Marine Lines announced it would no longer allow several southeast communities, including Sitka, to ship garbage out in open-top containers with limited compaction. They said it was part of an effort to reduce the risk of shipping fires at sea. They feel more comfortable with us using this closed container. Mm-hmm. And um, so we hope that that helps improve that as well. I mean, we don't we don't want to be the, the reason for a fire. Um, but, you know, that's a that's also a great point to bring up that we have to be careful as a community. Compaction into a closed off space reduces the smell and it has some other benefits. Before the compactor was installed, they were struggling to manage the wildlife at the station. It was a scavenger bird paradise, and bears even got their share of the action. We did actually have bear issues where they were literally getting into the container itself and getting trapped in the container. So they'd get down in there, and yeah, it's kind of a bad deal. The new compactor does have its limits, though. First, it can only fit items that are shorter than seven feet long. Say my car is seven feet long or under seven feet. Can it crush my car? I mean, is it that strong? <clears throat> it's, it's strong enough to, to do some really, really amazing things, but your car and metals are not permitted in the compactor. Metals, flammable materials, concrete, and other hazardous materials aren't permitted in the compactor. It's an expensive piece of equipment including installation and shipping from Oregon, the new system cost the city around $3 million. But Stenberg says the hope is that compacting garbage more efficiently into fewer shipping containers will save the city money in the long run. Time and data will tell. I'm really excited about the new equipment and what it means for our community. We've made a large investment in this process and in this new compactor, and I want to make sure that our community gets our money's worth out of it. And while it's not the perfect solution to expensive solid waste in Sitka, Stenberg hopes the compactor will help control costs right now. One day, a more robust recycling program and reducing consumption could play a bigger role. But that future is far, far away. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. Thanks for joining me for Midday Magazine. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.